listeners of The Corey Truax Show, Ellen DeGeneres has stolen my thunder. I'm the everyone-be-nice-to-everybody guy, but now she's getting all the credit for it. I'm going to talk about that. Also, a really cool piece of new knowledge I got from a recent sermon. That more on this week's Corey Truax Show. She's the best thing, the best thing could be With absolutely no hyperbole, I have more stuff on my prep sheet to do than I've ever had, and and I've never, I don't think I've ever been more excited about what I have on the prep sheet, so I want to get to it really quickly, just a couple quick words to get us started. The normal stuff first, welcome to the show, glad to have you, where we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk. If you're listening on his radio, 91.9 and 92.9, thank you for listening on Saturday mornings. Moreover, thank you for listening to the podcast, wherever you listen, I am genuinely grateful. The last podcast we did with Emily Blocksdorf on mental health and the Enneagram is now my most listened to episode by podcast numbers, and it's not close. It's my it's my most listened to in the first week of it being uh, available to you, so thank you for spreading it. Thank you for telling others about it. Thank you for listening uh, for to those who, who did. And then, uh, just a quick word, uh, the when I, I'm sitting down to do this, boy, guys, it's been a week. I, this is what, what I do for a living. It's travel season. I am all over the place. I'm in hotels constantly, out of rhythm. And I I, I had an episode uh, this week where I locked my keys in my trunk. I didn't know that I had done that. And so I was searching frantically. I was at Legacy Charter School near downtown Greenville, the old Parker High School, speaking at an event there. Like I was a featured financial aid speaker. It was kind of fun. And... Um, I was supposed to go to Rock Hill that night. Anyway, it was it was a big ordeal, very stressful, and it was a good reminder this week because I, I I'm a very independent person. I, I had to I had to be bailed out. I had to be bailed out by my friend Shakai, and I had to be driven around the next morning by my big brother so we could fix all this stuff. And I, I just want to start the show by saying, man, it's been it's been a rough week. Uh, so thank you to all of to all of the people who helped me. Thank you to the for the patience from the dozens and dozens or the tens and tens of you that listen to the show uh, for the the delay in getting the podcast out. Uh, but it's also just a quick reminder: life is not meant to be lived alone. And I am so grateful that I don't have to, that I have people around me to help me. And so thank you to to Doug and Shakai and all those that helped out with that that weird situation this week. Now speaking of Doug, that's actually where I want to start this week. I learned something in a sermon he did on Sunday, most recently. We're working through the book of Genesis together at Beachwood Church. By the way, you're invited to Beachwood Church any given Sunday morning there in Greenville. We're just in between Easley and Greenville. We meet at 1030 on Sunday mornings. We'd love to have you. We're working through the book of Genesis, and one of the great parts of being a, an exegetical church is not not preaching topically, so not just coming up and deciding, well, we should talk about marriage, or we should talk about parenting, or we should talk about finances, but actually just deciding, we're just going to go to the book, we're going to go to Scripture, and whatever happens to be in the text, that's what we're going to go to. And that's what we do. And one of the advantages of that is when you run into, let's say, a controversial topic, no one can blame you. Like uh, one of the complaints you hear of of churches, that people make of churches, is all they ever talk about is money. Well, at places like Beachwood, the exegetical, if we happen to talk about giving or generosity or tithing or something, we're only going to do that when it comes to the text. The text leads us there. Like, we didn't choose to do it. In any event, that's a, that's one of the cool parts about being exegetical as a church. And we're working through the book of Genesis, 
And we got to the part where Jacob, so you know you've got Abraham, God chooses Abraham by no but by, by by no virtue of Abraham. He just chooses a pagan and says, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make a people out of you. I'm gonna make a, a nation out of you. And so he he promises that to Abraham. A, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, give birth to Ishmael and Isaac, and God chooses Isaac and says, I'm going to give you the promises I gave your father. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And then Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, yeah, I'm right, Rebecca have Esau and Jacob, and Esau is the firstborn, but God chooses Jacob. And he says, I'm going to continue that promise. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And then Jacob is an adult. He's off on his own because he's running from his big brother. He's scared of him. And it comes to the, the story that we all learned in Sunday school if you grew up in church. Jacob being out in the wilderness, lays his head on a rock for a pillow, and he has this he has this vision of angels going up and up and uh, up and down out of heaven. And it was a great, really just a great sermon all the way around. But there was one point, one part that Doug brought out that I did not know, and I love to learn. Like I mean this, maybe it's because I've been have been sheltered. One of the most exhilarating feelings in my life is learning something. Like when I learn a new thing, it's like, oh my, I didn't know a thing, and now I know that new thing. I get so excited by learning new stuff, especially about the Bible. When I learn new Bible stuff, it just lights my world on fire. And so I learn something, and so for me, when I learn something, I also need to share it. Like learning something is not completed until you shared it. C.S. Lewis said this about art. Like you've not really enjoyed the art you said you enjoyed until you've shared it. So you hear a song you love, you read a book you love, you see a movie you love, you don't actually feel like you've really enjoyed it until you've told someone about it, until you've shared someone about it. C.S. Lewis said that. That's how I feel about knowledge. Like, until I've told the people I enjoy and the people I, I, I value, I haven't really learned it. And so you're the people I value, the people who listen to the show. So here is what I learned from that sermon. So, by the way, so just a couple principles. Learning for the sake of it is worth it. God gave us brains. He gave us intellects. They are worth exercising. So that's one. But two, this piece of knowledge actually has consequences to it. So first, I'm telling you because knowledge is worth having, biblical knowledge. And two, it has consequences. So the way most of us grew up, we grew up in a system that saw the Old Testament, so the law, the prophets, those books, were about the story of God and Israel, God and the people he chose, and the making of them of a nation, and then them going into slavery in Egypt, and then coming out of Egypt into the wilderness for 40 years, and then claiming the land, and then having judges, and then having a, having kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and then the breaking up of those kingdoms, and then Babylon and Persia coming in and taking them off into captivity. Like, this is what... And, and then the prophets coming and telling Israel different messages from God. Like, that, that was the story of the Old Testament. And then there's the New Testament. That's a whole other story. And that's about God and Jesus and this thing they call the church. And so we grew up in a system, most of us, if you grew up in the Southeast and you grew up in most Baptist world, where there's, there's the story of how God deals with Israel, then there's a story about how God deals with the church, and they're not the same thing. And that's, that's a very specific theological system that I don't subscribe to, but there was a lesson I learned in the language here that I didn't previously know. And by the way, there's consequences to that, right? So there's consequences to your theology. If, if you believe that God is dealing differently with Israel, that they are very specific and very special, and he loves Israel differently than he loves people who follow Jesus, well, you're going to think differently. Like you have entire movements that are, let's get all the Jews back to Israel, or 
if you if you want to be a blessed people or a blessed country, you need to be a people who blesses Israel. Like there's, it has political ramifications and theological ramifications to think that God thinks about Israel and Jews one way, and He thinks about Christians another way, because it's not actually true. the The whole story of Scripture is God making a people for Himself, and those people were always going to be the the first promise. So before there was ever an Israel. There was a promise in the Garden of Eden where where God says, the, the euangelion, the first gospel, I'm sending someone to fix this. I'm sending someone to crush the head of the serpent. And so the, the one people was, were always going to be those people joined in the one sent to fix it, and that's Jesus. And so God has Israel that leads up to Jesus. So that, that's the nation, the people that gives birth to the Messiah, and then here we are, the, ch- the church grafted into the thing that was always happening. It wasn't a new thing happening. It was, the, it was the completion of the thing. There's just the one thing, the people of God, that he was always drawing to himself. So, one of the reasons that this misconception was born is in the English Bible, there's the word for church, and then there was the word for Israel. But, when you when he went to the, the word study here, that's not really how it should have been translated in the English Bible. That the Hebrew word, I can't pronounce, it's two syllables, I can't even try. That Hebrew word, when the when Moses was writing the, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, that word got translated into Greek for this thing called the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. So it's a translation of the Old Testament. And it's very important to recognize that the the apostles, so during Jesus' age, they would have been reading the Septuagint. They would have had that Greek version of the Bible. And so, you have this, this word that it actually means congregation that, uh, that's, that's being used, that it gets translated into the Septuagint as ecclesia, so this congregation of peoples. And then when the English Bible was coming, specifically the King James Version. The people who were translating it into English, the King James English, were given rules by the government. They gave them rules about what they could and couldn't do. And one of the rules was where the New Testament says church, you have to say church. You can't translate it any other way, even if there is a better translation, because there's political ramifications to that, right? There was the church and the state were together, and so we don't want you changing that language. But with, with clarity here, the word, uh, the, 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 when you trans, can't think of the word here, but the triple translation, you go back to that first Hebrew word, which came to Greek as ekklesia, that came to the English as the church. It all actually should go back to that Hebrew word, word root word, which, which was congregations, the congregations of the people. And so if we wouldn't have had this politically motivated the, the translation in the King James Version, we would probably not have as much problems as we do have with confusion over how God doesn't deal with Israel and with the church differently. And it's all over. They're really just not getting the word right in the translation. And I was blown away. Because I had, I've had the theology right, but I didn't know this textual evidence of it. And so here we now know the entire story of Scripture is the story of Jesus. In the church, the, the church is not separate from Israel. So, if, well, I guess one quick, um, one quick piece of uh, let's go with consequences to that, and then we'll take a break. And we're actually going to come back and hear from a listener 
Daniel, who had some thoughts on a, on a recent episode I did on Genesis. So it's, it's pretty heavy on some Bible stuff today, but we have some political option, uh, things as well. So you have, you, ha- you can recognize that a lot of the, the, the promises God makes to this nation of Israel, his peoples, that if you're in Christ, if you're in Jesus, that you inherit those promises. You're, you, Israel's not being dealt with differently than you were. That you're just as much in Christ as Moses was if you have faith in Jesus and you're following after him and you're repentant of your sins. I could do this a long time. The This idea of, it's, it's actually called dispensationalism and there's covenant theology. I could continue on on this. Maybe we'll do an episode on it later. But that's a cool new thing I learned and I love to share the new things that I learned. All right, we got to do some. We got a lot to do, guys. So we're gonna come back. We're gonna go to this listener submission from Daniel. Uh, pieces of that, and then we got a lot more to do. When you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax show. Go do yourself a favor and follow me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find me there because there is none other. Not that I'm all that unique, it's just my name is weird, so go follow me there if you would be so kind. I'm going to get to a listener feedback here in a second. I also have a healthcare debate. If you have not heard of IQ2, they do Oxford-style debates, so very formal debates. There was recently one on healthcare that I think was excellent, as in the people who disagree with me, the socialized medicine people, they did such a good job, and so did the free market folks, and so I want to play part of that for you. I want to talk about that Ellen thing. There's a lot to do, but so we, we need to get moving. Right, so here we go. Daniel listens to the show, and he was encouraged recently by a segment I did regarding Genesis. And uh, Daniel knows some stuff, and so I would I want to play for you part of that call. Uh, and so to Daniel, who's probably listening, hey, man, I, I cut your call down. <laughs> it was like 12 minutes, and I think I cut it down pretty far to some key things because he, he brings out some very important stuff. And I think I kept it faithful to the meaning as, as I edited that call. And so I'm going to play for you now and make some comments as we go. But this is also encouragement to you. You should do what Daniel did, right? You, if you've got comments, you can email them like some folks do. But you can also go to Marco Polo. You can find me, Corey Truax. You can go to the Anchor app. You can leave voicemails for the show and have them played on the show. And I will uh, always, I think you know this about me, I'm nice. That's like my thing. Sometimes I yell, and I'm sorry for that, but I'm mostly nice. I like I like kindness, and so uh, that's what we're going to do now. All right, so Daniel, a fellow listener to the show, after hearing me talk about Genesis, and the, well, I had several thoughts on it, and here's how he responded. All that to say, I was interested in your first topic, and I, and I think, I'll just, I'll go ahead and say, on, uh, first of all, I, I don't think we disagree um, at all, I don't think. I, I was really happy to hear you say uh, that you don't think... Um, that believing a literal seven-day creation uh, is... I I was glad that you said that believing that is not a test for orthodoxy. I think that's exactly right. Um, I think that's where I find Ken Ham and his whole... uh, both his hermeneutical, his theological, and his scientific frameworks all are really unhelpful for me. Uh, For Ken Ham to disbelieve in a literal seven-day creation is to... uh, is to not believe the gospel. And I think that's highly problematic for a couple reasons. That means guys like John Piper, Tim Keller, Augustine, etc., 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 didn't believe the gospel because no. 
several things there for that first part of the call. First, well, thanks for saying so. I, I do think it is important for us to say uh, that folks who don't agree on the nature of creation and Genesis uh, aren't outside of orthodoxy, uh, that we can still be in the family of God together. Uh, two, the uh, I did not know that about John Piper. I did look into it. It does seem like he's open to not having a literal six-day creation. Tim Keller definitely is an old-earth creation person. Uh, but the, the, the big key there being orthodoxy. Are we in the same family? Are we still brothers and sisters in Christ if one of us thinks the earth is a bunch is billions of years old and one thinks it's a couple thousand years old? And it, Are we still in the same family? And that's what orthodoxy means. Now, orthodoxy is more than that. It's a, quite a bit more than just... It's, it is more than just death, burial, and resurrection, but that's the key. And can we have different opinions on this and still be brothers and sisters in the same family? And the answer is yes. It's not Trinitarian theology. It's not uh, divinity of Jesus. Th- this has been discussed with other listeners with a lot of respect, and this is where we need to get. And the guys like Ken Ham actually do find problematic because he would not agree. Like, if you don't think Genesis is word for word historic, like it is the historic record, then you might be outside the faith. And I use that word historic right there very specifically because Daniel has a very good point here about the distinction between historic and literal. That's what he has for us next. The second point I would make is that when we talk about the word literal, this gets in, it's really a hermeneutical question of what is, what is the nature of Scripture? And uh, if, if Scripture is uh, God communicating to us through human authors, through verbal, plenary verbal inspiration, um, then we... One of the, one of the one of one of the things about that that scholars across the board would agree is that God accommodates His language and speech and His mode of His mode of speaking to the culture at hand. And so, when we talk about literal, what is something if something in Scripture literal or not? The first question has to has to be: Did the author intend for it to be literal or not? That's the question. Because uh, people who want a literal reading of Scripture, I, I read the Bible literally. I'm, I'm a literalist. Well, you don't go chopping off your arm and poking out your eyeball when you sin. Because it's clear that when Jesus said those things, he was using hyperbole, which is figurative, figurative language. I have also had this problem with people who say, I'm a literalist. Well, not all the Bible was meant to be taken so. All, the Bible is in genre. Like, they're... The the, the, the the psalmist in Psalm 23 didn't actually go down to the valley of the shadow of death. That's probably not a geographic location on the planet. It's a figurative language. And so what happens is we impose upon Scripture sometimes some stuff we shouldn't impose on it. And so you have to ask the question about what, what's meant to be literal. And in the first couple chapters of Genesis, by the way, are written poetically. They're not written in essay style, right? So that tells us something. Why, why is it written in poetry? What's, what's that trying to commute, communicate to us? Also, he used a term there, Daniel did, that not all of us know, right? So if you don't know verbal, plenary inspiration, this is probably something you believe, but you don't know the, the $2 seminary word for it. Basically, that just we, we believe that every word of the Bible— word for word, in its original language, is inspired by God. That it might be different stylistically by the author, but that the Holy Spirit inspired every word that is totally inerrant. And so then we have to go to that 
author. We have to go to the intent. What are you trying to tell me in this genre? One of the big issues we have on this is, I think, sometimes revelation. There's a discussion on what, what is the, um, what's the genre here? Some folks will, will agree it's a pop, apocalyptic literature, but is it apocalyptic and prophetic, or is it just apocalyptic? So you have to actually figure out what the genre of the literature is in the Bible before you impose upon it anything else. Uh, he's going to finish up some thoughts here next on figurative versus literal. What we'll have to recognize is there is a difference between something being literal and something being historic. I mean, what's going on in Genesis 1 and 2 can completely 100% be historic and that they were events that actually happened. But by choosing poetry as the way in which, and not prose, to describe those events, I think it's pretty obvious that, um, that there's going to be some things going on in the text that, that, that may be historic but aren't literal. And I know that that's a pretty fine, uh, nuanced point, but I think it's important to be made. Um, I would say also that I think John Walton is correct that one of the big problems with this, the framing of this entire question is that we're asking questions of the text that it wasn't written to answer. And that happens all the time for people. They impose upon the text stuff it's not trying to do. Uh, that John Walton, he's a scholar. He makes a very good point that folks bring an agenda to the Bible often and try to get answers out of it that it's not, it's not intended to give us. Also, I think I made a mistake and said he was talking about figurative, figurative versus his uh, literal. He, it's the difference between historic and literal is the point there. That the, sometimes it doesn't. It's not trying to be historic. And so when you you just have to get that nuance, and I, he actually said the word nuance. A lot of us, I'm not one of them. Some people don't like nuance. It's it takes some intellectual depth and flexibility to understand. There's nuance in language, and that makes some people uncomfortable. Uh, back to Daniel here. He's got another point here related to what we we're just talking about. And so when we drop. Um 18th, 19th, and 20th century questions about the nature, the scientific nature of origins on a text that was not written to answer those questions, we end up getting in all kinds of hot water. Very good point about Genesis. Genesis was not meant to respond to evolution. It was not meant to respond to Darwin. Its intention, and Daniel actually gets into it in the call, but I wanted to shorten this. The intention of Genesis first was to tell Israel where they came from. You had Israel coming out of Egypt after a long time in in slavery and seeing the origin stories of the ancient Near East world, and Moses sits down to say, all right, so here's our story. Here is from which we came. You're, you're hearing that all of creation came from a battle amongst these gods and what fell out of the sky was this earth or something. Like you there was a there was a battle in the in the nether worlds and what, what landed here what was, what, is what was left or something. There was all kinds of creation myths. That was actually primarily his, his first audience. And if you come to Scripture, by the way, recognizing who the first audience was, it doesn't mean it's not relevant to you. But if you come to the, to the Scripture knowing who your first audience is, you'll read the Bible more accurately. One of the things we've done poorly in the American church is the, is the notion of, well, what, this is what this verse means to me. And so then when you when you come from a church that is cool with, hey, what's this verse mean to you? Then you go to the Bible, you sit down to read, and you ask, what is this verse, what is this passage I'm about to read? What's it mean for me? Well, that's not a healthy first question. 
The first question is, what did this mean to the first people who wrote it, the original audience? And you will get a much more accurate read from Scripture if you'll start right there. I, I think there's probably a little bit better of a case made for theistic evolution than you presented it in your, in your podcast. Um, I agree with you that in some sense it's illogical, unless the logic is God. Well, what if, um, if, what if God did utilize some sort of um, stepped program, not, not necessarily evolution as we find it in or the origin of species, but, but what if what if what if creation was a multi-state event and what Darwin discovered, um, there was a kernel of truth in what Gar- Darwin discovered something that he completely misrepresented because of his naturalistic worldview. Daniel was responding to a second episode, I think, where I said so like I had the one episode where I was like, hey guys, if people don't think Genesis, the creation account's literal, they're still Christians if they believe the the cores of the faith. And then I had a second episode where I was like, yeah, evolution's stupid. Yeah, that, that doesn't make any sense. It's totally irrational. So he's responding to that. One quick theological note. I, I, I get where he's coming from. That Maybe there might be some logic there that you can maybe fit it into the text. I, I, I mostly just come from a scientific standpoint and think, there, no, that's just... There's too much chance that you you just you just have to chalk up design, and maybe Daniel would say, "Well, yeah, it's design through evolution." I'm not married to any position on that necessarily. I just find the thinking. I even actually was listening to one of my favorite very secular podcasts called Radio Lab. I've mentioned it. It's a science podcast from NPR, so it's a government podcast, right? That's a bunch of secular people. And they talked about the. They keep using the language of miracle of evolution. And I wish I could just get in a room with them and say, "Do you hear what you're saying? The miracle of evolution. Even you guys think this is supernatural because it's so impractical." The the one thing I wanted to mention, there is some stuff that I think we there we do have to take as literal. That I can't like compromise on. Of course, it's like that the God is the actor on it. But you know, when you get into is that Romans? that talks about the federal head, so Adam as a representative of all of humanity, and then Jesus ends up being the second Adam, the federal head. I, uh, th- there's there's some argument I would make that even if you think there was some other type of human out there or something, that Adam has to be literal. And then one part I think that is out of, outside of orthodoxy. G- God makes clear in the Genesis narrative, even if it's not literal, one of the things he's tried to communicate is humankind is different. Humans are the only ones made in the image of God. There's the rest of the creation, and it is good, but there is one part of the creation made in the image of God, and God made with his own hands, and that's mankind. And so if there is a worldview that would say mankind came from something else and then became man, it has a a primate type of ancestor, well then I will say no, that will not fit into orthodoxy because mankind is a unique creation of God totally separate from all other things. I think this is the last part of Daniel's call coming up here right now. Uh, The age of the earth and whether or not God used evolution to get us here has nothing to do with the resurrection. Either Jesus was raised or not, and if he was raised then you have a whole set of next steps that, that determine what you believe about the world and about the telos of creation. And if he wasn't raised from the dead, then there's, a, then there's another way that you go. That's the crux of the, the crux of the gospel and the biblical witnesses. Did or did not Jesus come out of the grave after he was killed stone cold dead on the cross? That's the question of orthodoxy. 
amen and amen. And that's how I'll go ahead and end the call. The call is longer than that, but those are the, those are the core points of it. There's, there's some other points to the core of orthodoxy. But, but the core of it, the crux, the crux of history, the crux of our faith is Jesus. And where we find agreement, where Jesus is unique, he's the only way, he's not one of many ways. Jesus took the punishment for sin on the cross because there had to be punishment because God is good and God is holy and he's going to punish sin because he is good and holy. And then out of his goodness, he decided to make a way of salvation through punishing the sin of the redeemed on the cross and reconciling a people to himself. Where we have agreement on that, there can be some disagreements on how you think the world started and how you think it's going to end. <laughs> you know, that's so funny to me. It just, I just came to that conclusion as I'm talking. This is not part of my notes. We argue so much over how the world began and how it ended, and it divides so many people. And that's, or excuse me, not how it ended, but how it will end. And these are just not things we should, we should divide over. But in times ministries and creation ministries are entire genres of ministry out there and also entire lines where people divide and it's just not worth dividing over. So Daniel, good call. Thank you for doing it. And to the rest of, rest of the listenership of the Corey Truax Show, you can be like Daniel. You can tell me about stuff you think I should talk about. You can call in to the Anchor app. You can leave a voicemail on the Anchor app. You can use Marco Polo. Or you can just write into the show at Show at gmail.com, Show at gmail.com. You can also reach me on any of the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and write into the show with your thoughts. I would be glad to have him. We're going to take an early break right now so that when we come back, I can give you a story I wanted to from The Federalist. I will play for you more of that, or excuse me, play for, play for you that healthcare debate that I want you to hear because it's so good. And if we have time, I do want to get into that Ellen DeGeneres audio that's gone so viral. And then it is the triumphant return of our sports segment. We'll do that and more when we come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back to the final segment of the Corey Truax Show. We've got a lot of work to do. Let's get to it. One story from the Federalist I have to get to, uh, and then we'll talk about health care, and I think every side of the health care debate will be pretty happy with what I'm going to play because it's really both sides in a debate. It's so well. And uh, just... It was a testament to good discourse. We're going to get to that in a moment. Here we go. I saw the headline and I couldn't believe it. I thought it was a, a sad, like a very, a very bad parody. One of those parodies that shouldn't be written because it's too, too graphic. But this is the headline. Late-term abortionist offers mothers the chance to cuddle their dead babies. This is real. There's a woman named Leroy, Leroy Carhart. She does abortions. And we now have documents from her death clinic where if you're getting your child aborted and you want to have some chance to cuddle with that child, you want to hold that child after the procedure. She doesn't even call it a fetus. She used the words baby. I'm going to read to you from one of the documents we have from this monster right now. One of the documents recently uncovered is many patients, that would be the mothers that would come in to have their children murdered, 
many patients request a remembrance of their baby to take home with them, using the word baby, not fetus. The following item, the following lists items and services that some of our patients have found helpful in their emotional recovery. Every family approaches this experience with their own unique emotional, spiritual, and cultural background. There is no right or wrong way, just your way. Once the process of healing has begun, you may want to consider a token of the precious time you and your baby had together. All of those features, all the all of these features of our program will be discussed with you while you're with us. So that was on their website, some documents they gave out. It includes, by the way, photographs of the child after abortion, cremation services, funeral arrangements, getting footprints. I wasn't sad when I, I guess I started sad, but I quickly got to angry. And then back to sad and I vacillate. Because this this thing that we're doing here with the mass abortion that we have, and then the, the I'm just going to call it what it is, the insanity and stupidity, it's dumb. It's darkened hearts and dark spirituality that leads people to to be pro-abortion or pro-choice. Because here's what this shows me. We all know what we're doing. There's not any ambiguity around abortion. We're not removing cells. We're not having a procedure. We all know what we're doing. We are murdering a human baby in cold blood every time it happens. This is the slavery of our age. There is no moral ambiguity around it. And it's the saddest of stories. And I'd like to just sit in it and keep pounding on it till the end of the show, but I have this other thing that's actually happier and good, so we need to do it. There was a debate on, it's called Intelligence Squared U.S. Intelligence, Intelligence Squared U.S. does debates I listen to a lot. They bring together smart people that I agree with and disagree with, and they have these debates. I s- highly encourage you to go listen to this debate. Intelligence Square debate, the resolution of the debate was, should we have Medicare for all? So the Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders plan, should we do Medicare for all? What a good debate. Everyone performed so well. But the moderator, who is just excellent and way smarter than I am and I want to be like him when I grow up, John Donvan, after the first round, he was going through all the practicalities and processes and good policy, but he did hit to one of those fundamental philosophical questions that I've covered covered on the show before. And so I want to play for you a little bit of the back and forth and comment on it to a very fundamental philosophical question, and that is, is healthcare a human right? There's a difference on understanding and interpretation of the facts. There's also a basic philosophical difference, I think, between the two sides. I want to explore that very, very briefly, just a little bit. This notion that I think right now is certainly motivating the Democratic candidates, that healthcare is a human right, uh, it's one that we are increasingly hearing uh, as part of the rhetoric. Uh, it's, it's not a new idea. The World Health Organization signed on to it back in 1946, and we signed those treaties, but it hasn't really been part of the conversation until, I would say, the recent past. So I want to start with, I'll, I'll go to the side arguing against the resolution. This question, uh, do you think healthcare is a right, and how does that inform the position you're taking on the resolution? Sally Pipes. Well, healthcare to me is neither a right or a privilege as it's being talked about. Healthcare is a good and service, and like all goods and services, healthcare is necessarily scarce. I love this woman. 
It's not a right for Bernie Sanders. It's not a privilege that the left says, but it is a resource. It's scarce. There's only so much oil in the world. There's only so many potato chips. There's only so many hotel rooms in a tourist town. There's also only so many doctors and machines and tests. Of course, it's not a right because it's a resource. Declaring a right to health care that is green lighting essentially unlimited demand for health care will not miraculously engender unlimited supply. Such good economic thought here. Like, go ahead, do that with something else. Go ahead. Uh, heating is a human right. Heating in the winter and cooling in the cooling in the summer is a human right. All right, I declared it. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to provide it? Of course it's not. Because it's a resource. It requires people to do things and infrastructure to be built. You can declare it all you want, a human right. That doesn't actually practically do anything. It doesn't change that it's scarce. Go ahead and declare it. We all have a right to gas in our car. All right, you declared it, just like you're declaring health care. That doesn't actually change the practicality, and that's how we all have to grow up and recognize it. In, in, in to meet the demand for health care. It's also unclear what a right in health care really is. Does it mean the right to the very best doctors, the very best care, or simply a right to equal care? Very good question. Everyone just loves to call it a right, but doesn't actually build it out with any kind of specificity. This is where I had a good text with a great friend, smart smart person, Glenn, who came up with a, a good illustration. Because like I am very much against government health care. He asked about, what, what about government health care plans for just catastrophic situations? And I still don't like it, but I could be open to it. Because this thing she's saying here, well, I have a right to health care. Do, do I get to then declare, well, I have a right to the best heart surgeon? Or do I get to have the 50th best heart surgeon? Where does that right actually get? Do I have a right to get my, my cavities filled? Do I have a right to free contact lenses? Or do I only have a right to certain kinds of health care? Because it sounds cute. It's adorable to say that everyone has a right to health care. But it doesn't actually mean anything. And so Glenn had the idea, well, what about catastrophic care only so that it can't crush somebody, can't ruin someone for life? To which I have a, a lot more sympathy, and it's a good idea he came up with. If the latter, would the government have to ban people from paying for better care? And does the right to health care come with any corresponding duties? If I have a right to health care, does the government have the right to tell me myself that I am not healthy and that I can't have health care? Do I waive that right if I'm a smoker or if I'm a, a obese, as in the UK, British people that are obese or smokers are having a hard time because doctors are told not to treat them. So I believe healthcare is not a right. Let me bring the same question to Adam Gaffney. Healthcare absolutely should be a right. It's not a right in this country because we care more about the interests of the private insurance industry and their shareholders than we care about the rights of American patients. So yes, it should be a right. I played the rest of that in totality because we're running out of time and i got to go fast now. She asked a really good question at the top there where the uh, do you have to ban people buying extra health care? So you have the situation where uh, somebody says, well, okay, the government's providing this, but I still want private health insurance. I've got the money to do it. I want better health care. Are you going to have to ban that? And I, I wonder what the answer would be. And, and then the other side, and they did way better in this debate than that example. I, I hate to play just that part because they, the pro- Socialized medicine people in that debate, they did a good job, and you should go listen to that debate because it really was good. But that was, of course, a terrible point. 
she makes a bunch of good practical points, very adult points about economics and the, the laws of supply and demand. And it's just, well, it should because we like it and it's a better idea. All right. Well, we should all get chocolate on our pillows at night. I mean, come on, grow up. I ran, I ran out of time, so I'm going to have to rush through this last one. Ellen DeGeneres went to a Dallas Cowboys game where the Dallas Cowboys lost, and it made me sad. And uh, she sat with George W. Bush, and then she got some flack because she sh- she sat with a Republican, which means, of course, she's a terrible person. And then she went on her show, and I don't have time to play the audio now, and said, be nice. Be nice to everybody. Be nice to even the people you disagree with. And I've been preaching that for a long time, and now she's getting all the love for it. I'm going to admit it. I'm a little jealous that she gets all the love for it. But nevertheless, it's a very important message. I'm glad she said it, and it's one I all wish we would just abide by. Just be kinder to the people we disagree with. It's been a quick-going show, and for the first time in a long time, guys, I can't wait to say it. Let's move on to sports. Are you? It is the triumphant return of how the show should end. It should end with sports. We do that with <laughs> Heath Powell. Hi there, sir. Hello. Our humble sports correspondent. Welcome to the family. Baby Judah, how's he doing? He's doing great. I you know we took a little hiatus for yes. baby and mom, so now we're back. Deer season, cool weather, oh, football. Yeah. For you, deer season is a thing. Yep. You should know. Some I announced you had a kid, and we welcomed Judah into, into the world, and some listeners actually you know, wrote in, hey, how's the... Let's go to Heath. How's oh, the baby? Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, and thank so, you. Yeah. Thanks to those listeners who actually who actually care. All right. First half of the college football season, unbelievably, has already passed us. Yeah. It's so, insane how fast it's gone by. It goes back that quick. Who I'm going to tell you who, who's impressed me the most thus far. For me, it's LSU and Ohio State have mm-hmm. impressed me the most thus far. Who has impressed you the most so far? Well, the, the two teams you just said, plus Oklahoma, all have transfer quarterbacks. Isn't that crazy? Burrow comes from Ohio State. Justin Fields leaves Georgia, goes to Ohio State. Yep. Uh, you know, Hurts leaves Alabama, goes to Oklahoma. I think that's the story, how this transfer portal, and, you know, you can play automatically. Of course, Justin Fields gets the waiver, which right. you can debate that however you want um, because some guys don't get one, some guys do get one to play immediately. I think that's the story. I mean, those are all top five, top six teams, and they all have a transfer quarterback. That is Something that never – if, you, if right. you have one transfer quarterback, yeah. that changes the season. But maybe the three teams that have been the most dominant thus far yeah. have that situation. And to answer your question, yeah. the most impressive to me is LSU. Yeah. Ohio State's been good the past five, ten years. You know, Oklahoma's been good in the playoff. LSU finally gets away from that pro-style pound, pound, pound yes. the ball, pound the ball, punt. If we break it run, we break it. Yeah. And now they're throwing the ball like – that's just what football is now. Yes. You have to be able to pass the ball. Yeah. And Joe Burrows is doing a fantastic job. They probably have the best win thus far, too. The Texas win oh, yeah, I think is so. the best win in all of college football thus far. Yeah, It's just that some of these teams scheduled folks that aren't as good as maybe they thought. Right? Yeah, I mean, so, just take Clemson, for example. Who knew Florida State was going to be as bad as they are? It's, that's, it's, you know, that's a, who knew Georgia Tech was going to be as bad as yeah. they are? Historically, they've been top 25 in Florida State, top 10 type teams and you just don't know when you schedule the make the schedule six years in advance exactly yeah. well even with offer when they scheduled oregon oregon's still okay but not nearly as good as i think people thought they were going to be right and i think with her bears quarterback they're they're ascending again i think sure. they're they're 13th as of their last game they'll move up because they won but yeah i mean you don't you just don't know that's the ebb and flow of college yeah. sports hey, somebody you mentioned clemson we'll go ahead and move that direction for their season i had that discussion with somebody here recently when 
when they're scheduling A and M, Louisville is a top five team, and Florida State's a top five team. Right. And you're, then you're scheduling another top fifteen team in A and M, and for that matter, South Carolina was pretty good. When that schedule, when you were looking at that schedule four years ago, you think this is a really challenging hard schedule. Yeah. How how'd you know that South Carolina, Florida State, and Louisville were going to plummet be into the floor? Dumpster fire. Yeah. But I think that's another narrative that's not entirely true. Because, you know, before the bye week, which was week six, there were, I don't know, 15 undefeated teams. Of yeah. those undefeated teams, the strength of schedule through the five games, Auburn was number five strength of schedule, mm-hmm. Ohio State was 22, and Clemson is third. Really? With a 32 wow. uh, strength of schedule. Incredible. And Alabama's, you know, Alabama's fifth. Oklahoma's wow. fourth. I did not know so this. So I think there's just narrative with in it. I know people get tired of hearing it about the, the ACC conference yeah. and the SEC conference. There does seem to be some kind of a bias because well, Clemson's strength of schedule is better than Alabama's and Oklahoma's. There, there's a narrative because it's true, right? There, the, yeah. there is a media bias towards uh, anti-ACC world, and it's again, it's not Clemson's fault that the ACC is so terrible. I thought Florida State would have had a much better year by now. Well, just look at how bad Virginia Tech is. Who Great saw point. that coming? Virginia Who Nick? saw Miami in the dumpster? Those two, especially Florida State. Yeah. Like, the only reason those Big East teams were brought into the ACC yes. was for football. And out of nowhere, Duke might be better than all of them. Yeah, how is Boston College better than Florida State it's and nuts. Miami? It it's insane. Crazy. For that matter, Syracuse, they don't look great now. But the last couple of years, Syracuse is a better program than Florida State. Yeah, it's, it absolutely makes no sense. We want I'll, I want to talk about Clemson more going forward here in a second. But then, the because the other local team is South Carolina, no matter how the rest of the season goes, is the, this is the end for most champ, isn't it? I think they're really frustrated with him. I think it's got to be. I think the fans are done with him. I think it has to be. Yeah. It, it he, tried it. He, it's not working. No. It's just not working. You're getting you know, fairly good recruits. So let's just yeah. be honest. They're, their recruiting classes have not been 50th in the country. No. They're, they're top 20 They've recruiting got classes. But it's just there's no development there, and I don't understand why. I don't know. What's, I just don't get it. Yeah, usually I do get it. Like, I, can see a, I can see something going wrong in a football program, and yeah. I can identify it. I look at South Carolina and go, why aren't you good yet? Here's what it may be. Maybe Muschamp is not cut out to be a head coach. Yeah. He's a great defensive coordinator. And he is. He's Some of those guys are just made to be coordinators. Yeah, I mean, you know, once you've failed as a head coach at, you know, other places, it, it's kind of what you are. Like, maybe you're not cut out to be a head coach. It's obviously going to be a disappointing season for them. Yep. Uh, and I think that's the end of the road, end of the road for him. One other thing that surprised me, and then I, I think I want to get back to that, the Clemson uh, stuff. The thing that surprised me this season is I can't figure out why Tennessee is so bad as a program. Yeah, that they have every reason to be good. Yeah, talent pool around them. What's it called? Neely Neely Stadium. Neely yeah. Stadium. All it's the a, history, and they're terrible. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. To me, it seems like there's some. Um, poison inside the program mm. i don't know if you want to blame philip fulmer he, he's in my opinion should have never been brought back as an ad he just he, they should have cut ties with him yes i know he won a national championship i know he got paid many i get that to me it seems like there's a lot of infighting going on i don't think jeremy pruitt has been set up to succeed there no. um i don't think he's allowed to succeed there um you know when this airs the the tennessee has already played um who did they play yesterday? Yeah, Georgia, didn't they? Yeah, Georgia, that's right. They yeah. gave them a, a – they did really well. You know, of course, Georgia's talent caught up at the second half. Yes. And they kind of took off. But, um, you know, I don't know if he's if he's going to be allowed to win. To me, it seems mm. – and this is there's a narrative out there that Fulmer wants to let him implode and then take back over the head coaching job. Oh, wow. Job. <laughs> that's not cool. Not cool, Fulmer. No, I can't prove that. That's yeah. just what a lot of people are saying. So, finishing up here then, 
go with Clemson. Is there? Do you do you think something's wrong with Trevor Lawrence just throwing a bunch of picks? Does that worry you about his trajectory? No, and I'll I'll be honest with you. I'm so tired of hearing this because if you take the last five years, <laughs> yes, starting from Watson's first year of starting, there are less turnovers, there are more yards, more touchdowns, more yards per play, more yards after catch. There's all that. Yeah. Yes, he's throwing five interceptions. You know what? Who cares? Because that is 50% of Clemson's offense. Yep. You have the wide receivers. They throw, they call them 50-50 balls, yep. jump balls. We expect our guy to go up and get it or keep the – Guy from intercepting. Now, a couple of those were on Trevor. Sure. They were just overthrown or underthrown. You know, his back shoulder, he throws it too short to the outside. Yes. It doesn't matter. It doesn't. The, the facts speak for themselves. The data speaks for themselves. We're yep. in a data-driven world. Yes. My work works in data. Your work works in data. Oh, yeah. That's your job. Just look at the numbers. They're, they're, be- they're, they're better. They're, they're more advanced past where they were past game five this year than they have been the past five years. And I would remind all the folks that – over his three-year career, Deshaun Watson literally led college football interceptions. Yeah, no a, one threw more than he did. He had a lot because that's the offense Clemson runs. And let me say this, too. <laughs> just just because the national, I call them pundits, those guys, you know, they're all like, what's wrong with Clemson, you know, blah, blah, blah. We are judging this Clemson team off of what we saw in January against Alabama. Yes. It is a completely different team. This team is sophomore yep. and freshman laden. Yes, Trevor Lawrence was a true freshman then, but – it's a totally different year. It's a yes. different team. He has different weapons. They're still plugging and playing pieces, trying to figure out who works. You can't judge last year's national championship team against this year's team. It's different. They're, but they're still undefeated, so what is the problem? Yes. Also, uh, it really matters how you play, mostly in November and December. That's what I was going to say. Plus, yeah. that's game 15. Yep. They've played five games. Yes, there's a marked difference. Yeah. You, you build they, it over time. Go back to last year. Syracuse game. They struggle, 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 struggle. Barely yep. beat A&M. Play the Syracuse game. And then they start just pasting people. If I am a program, I'd rather peak in January than would you not peak in September. But that's the thing. Dabo keeps saying that. Yeah, we're still young. We're still learning. You know, we're yeah. five and zero. Oh, it's where we want to be. That's good stuff. Blah blah blah. Hey man, it's good <laughs> to have you back. Yeah, this is fun. I missed it. We're gonna be back another uh, for another time next week. Some more games will be played. Maybe even do a little NFL at some point, but probably more college. Thanks for coming in and doing sports, sir. Appreciate it. All right, we'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.